Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 221. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, welcome to Starship Sova again. Fine show, we're in right in the middle of two serials. We have the first or the second part of Cory Doctorow's The Martian Chronicles coming up today. Then we have a new fact article launching for the new year, Header of the Mind by Paul Finch. Paul is going to be looking at all things old-time sci-fi radio-ish. So do listen out for that. Then we have the vintage serial, Exit Centre Stage, which is part two. All Sherlock, all goodness of Sherlock Holmes. Then we have Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. A fine show for number 221. I do hope you'll agree. So we'll get straight into the second part of Cory Doctorow's The Martian Chronicles. This came out in Jonathan Strand's Life on Mars. And if there's any justice in the world, this story should be up for best Hugo for novella as well. It is a fine story and one that I thoroughly recommend to take that coveted prize. Talking about Hugo's, yes, the Starship Sofa. That's always there as well if you you know want to vote for that. I'll talk a little bit more about things like this later on in the show. But first off then, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present The Martian Chronicles, Part 2 by Cory Doctorow. Previously on Martian Chronicles, teenager David Brion Oglethorpe Smith III and his family set off on an adventure leaving an overpopulated Earth behind to become colonists on Mars. David, a powerful virtual CEO in the role-playing game Martian Chronicles, 
quickly meets fellow teenagers and Martian Chronicles players, Vijay and Helene, on their colony ship Eagle. Vijay is a pove, or lower-class person, whose virtual persona in the Martian Chronicles game is even higher than David's, a senior auditor. Helene is powerful in her own right as a corporate raider. Will this trio be able to overlook their real-life and online social classes and embrace their new life as colonists starting over on a new world? Or will the pecking orders from Earth reestablish themselves as soon as they touch down at their new home? And now part two of Martian Chronicles by Cory Doctorow. Helene came and got me a couple days later, rescuing me from a truly epic sulk in my parents' cabin. You look like Martian crap, she said. How's that different from Terran crap? I asked her. It's redder, with a slightly longer day, also less gravity. My father chuckled and my mother smiled, and I heard the klaxon go off in the back of my head, the one that went, alert, alert, parents about to say something like, is this your little girlfriend, David? Mom, Dad, this is Helene. We're going out now, okay? Bye. I said and grabbed Helene and dragged her down the corridor as fast as I could. From behind me, I heard my parents call sarcastically, Nice to meet you, Helene, and come by any time. And other parents looked at us from their bunks through the open doors as we tore ass toward the hatch that led in ship toward the low grav zones. What is it? I asked when we were through the airlock that separated the decks. I had been leaving you messages in-game, but you haven't answered them. Finally, I decided to see when you'd last logged in, and I saw it had been like 72 hours. And I decided you must have something terminal, so I came to find you, so I could tell you my secret before you died. What secret? You're really a crown prince who was hidden away by the king and queen, sent to live with a provincial bourgeois family so that the evil grand vizier couldn't catch you. You're the rightful heir to the ancient kingdom of Fredonia. You're weird. She bowed. Indeed. So what is it? Cholera? Plague? The crushing ennui of daily existence in a futile and uncaring universe? I squirmed. The deck we were on was lightly traffic. It had a different night than we did. Everybody slept in shifts. And semi-deserted at this hour. I was conscious of the fact that Helene was very pretty and somehow managed not to smell the smell, but rather like something slightly floral and nice. I was conscious of the fact that we were alone. I was conscious of the fact that the last time I'd spoken with Helene, I'd chased her off by treating her to an uninvited lecture on corporate responsibility. I just didn't feel like coming out, I mumbled, staring at my shoes. Oh, right then, she said. Okay, back you go. See you later. She began to walk away. I stared at her retreating back. Wait, I said. She looked over her shoulder at me. Yes? I feel like coming out now, I said. Oh, all right then. Let's go find Vijay. I felt weirdly disappointed. Helene wanted to hang out with me and Vijay, which suggested that the half-formed romantic suspicion I'd felt was totally unfounded. Of course. Why would someone as pretty as Helene want anything romantic to do with someone like me? Besides, she was as weird as a sack of snakes, there was no way to predict what was going on in her pointy little head. I knew, approximately speaking, where Vijay's quarters were. The quote-unquote scholarship bunk room, the place where the poves who'd been lucky enough to get a free ride on the Eagle, slept, was also the ship's hub, where there was no gravity to speak of. This allowed for a much higher density of humanity, 
You didn't need bunks, just loosely tethered cocoons where people slept. Vijay had told us about it with a shrug as if to say it wasn't any worse than his Bangladeshi orphanage, but I had a vision of a huge space in perpetual twilight where insectile sacks filled with softly breathing people drifted silently into one another, and it had given me a shiver. You're sure he's not in the JC lounge? I asked. No, he stopped showing up two days ago. The lag was killing him. The further we got from Earth, the laggier the game got, as our play traffic had to traverse the widening light speed gap between us and the servers twice, once in each direction. Almost immediately after takeoff, we'd lost real-time voice communications with our dirt side players. We could leave them voicemails and they could reply the same way, but that was all. Then we lost real-time graphics. Rather than flying through a constantly updated, pin-sharp rendering of the Mars of Martian Chronicles as it was, we saw it in blocky, symbolic graphics, covered in glyphs warning us that these buildings and people and vehicles might or might not still be there. Finally, the game turned into a set of spreadsheets that were updated once every minute, filled with the vital statistics about market activity, sales, mergers, acquisitions, corporate raids, and as we sped farther and farther from our worn-out mother planet, the update lag would be worse and worse. Until Apogee, the point where we were an equal distance from Earth and Mars, where our antenna would be reversed, and we'd begin three months' worth of reverse flight, finally slowing down to put us at a relative standstill by the time we reached our new home. At turnaround, the ship's networks would change over to the Martian Internet, a system that was almost entirely separate from Earth's spam-ridden cesspool. The two networks could barely communicate with one another. For one thing, Martian computers reckoned time differently, counting by Martian seconds, which were 1.025 Earth seconds long, just as the Martian day was 2.5% longer than the Earth day. So if you're sure he's not in the JC lounge, are you also sure he's in his quarters? You know, Vijay, he could be anywhere. It's the tail end of his sleep cycle. He's due to wake up in about 30 minutes. He'll be there. The Pove quarters announced themselves with their own smell, a smell distinct from the overarching smell of the eagle. This was the smell of people stuck together so close that every fart blew directly into someone else's face, every toe dangled tantalizingly inches from someone's nose, every armpit was wafting its perfume into someone else's breakfast. As we neared it, we heard the hum, the perpetual sound of a thousand people whispering, trying not to wake the others who were on sleep shift. The dim room was just as I imagined it, unsurprising since my impressions were based on candid photos posted to the ship's blog, snapped by colonists who'd snuck down to see how the other half lived. It really was like looking in on a termite's nest, or the underside of a rotten log, a squirming mass of half-seen humanity wrapped in gauzy harnesses. Looks like the Pove Towns in Martian Chronicles, doesn't it? Helene said, in a normal conversational voice that cut through the hum like a cymbal crash. I squirmed with embarrassment, mostly because I'd been thinking just that. You could always tell when a Martian Chronicles player was a Pove, because they built houses and businesses that looked like the Pove slums you saw in the news. They were too close together, and they ran businesses right out of their residences, and they always tried to do 3,000 things at once. Jetpack repair, accounting services, hairdressing, spacesuit design, all with enthusiastic, badly spelled signage. I guess, I mumbled and squinted into the darkness. 
there was a pove sitting by the door, a man with a little cracked-up palm top clipped to his flowing white shirt. Apparently, the backlight had gone. He was reading it by the light leaking in from the doorway, which we were blocking by standing there, gawping. He made an impatient gesture at us. Come in, come in, he said in an accented English. Maybe he was African? It sounded like the African accents in the games I'd played. We scooted past him and were enveloped in the close, overbreathed air of the Pove quarters. I had the same feeling I got when I stumbled into Pove towns in Martian Chronicles. Claustrophobia, nausea, and an awful, nagging guilt. And then anger. Why were we taking Poves to Mars anyway? Meanwhile, Helene was floating through the space, peering at people's faces, looking for Vijay. Found him, she sang out again, too loud for the space. And people rolled over in their cocoons and gave us dirty looks. I drifted over to her, grinned weakly at Vijay, who was scrubbing at his eyes with his long, skinny hands. Hello, he whispered. Funny meeting you here. He struggled out of his cocoon, and I saw he was wearing gray underpants and a t-shirt, and I looked away as he snagged his clothes from the ditty bag under the cocoon and pulled them on. Toilet, he said, and let us out of Pove land. There was a huge line for the nearest toilet, but he sailed past it and let us down a maintenance corridor that was barely wide enough to pass down, even turned sideways. Excuse me, he said, and ducked into a niche I hadn't even seen. A moment later, I heard the P-plus vacuum sound of a low-G toilet. I think they used this while they were building the eagle, he called over the noise, seemingly unembarrassed by having an audience for his toilet experience. It's not even on the as-built drawings, but they must have had a toilet while they were working, after they pressurized her. Before pressure, everyone would have worked in spacesuits and gone in a diaper. He emerged, fastidiously wiping his fingers on a sani wipe that he tucked into his waistband of his loose cotton pants. Okay, he said. Onward, stout comrades. He led us further up the corridor, and I felt myself growing heavier. A sense of downhill told me we were headed into the higher G outer rings. I heard muffled conversations from beyond the thin bulkheads, snatches of conversations in simplified English, and then in Spanish, which the crew spoke when there weren't any colonists around. They were mostly Mexican, poves really, and they were getting a free ride to Mars and a free start as colonists in exchange for driving the big tin can across the solar system for us. Where are we? Helene said in her stupid loud voice. Quietly, please, Vijay said without rancor. Crew quarters. This corridor goes all the way from the center to the outer ring. This is about as far as you can go before you start sliding downhill, though. I thought it would be fun to come back sometime and do it again, with pitons and ropes, and see if we can get all the way down to the passenger decks without falling straight down and breaking both legs. That does sound like fun, Helene said. Count me in. You too, I said. But it did sound like fun. We had months left in this tin can, and spending it all playing Martian Chronicles didn't sound nearly as much fun as it had before we'd actually left for Mars. Okay, Vijay, you're officially the coolest guy in outer space. Can we go now? It'd be nice to actually be able to see you guys rather than the backs of your heads. We were all turned sideways, remember? There wasn't even enough room to turn our heads. Don't you want to know what I learned here in my secret perch in crew territory? He was barely speaking above a whisper. We were all keeping it quiet, but he managed to convey unholy glee. Do tell, Helene hissed in a very loud whisper, like a whispered shout. 
The voices outside the walls got quieter, and we all held our breaths for a second. Then they got louder again. Well, I speak some Spanish, Vijay said. Just a little, but it's helpful in the Martian Chronicles to be able to audit a company's books in the language that they're kept in. And there are so many Mexican and South American corps now in MC. Farmers, I snorted. Everyone knew that the Spanish-speaking corps were just fronts for farmers, players that did mind-numbing, repetitive tasks in-game to amass wealth that they could sell to real players who didn't want their transactions to show up on the official registry. I could hear Vijay's silence from further up the corridor, just make out his shoulders tightening. Many of them are very good firms, he said, operating under the highest ethical standards. I opened my mouth to say something that would defend my position, but Helene spoke before I did. <clears throat> you were saying, Vijay? Yes, well, the thing is, the crew are very active MC players, and they have access to the Martian internet. Jeez, I said. That must be laggy as hell. Oh, yes, Vijay said. About 200 seconds of network delay, but that's plenty fast enough to let them get a look at Martian Chronicles. They're logging in? Oh, yes. Logging in and even joining up with Corpse. They want to be sure that by the time they land, they have a good position. Think about it. Once we hit Apogee and switch the Eagle's main system over to the Martian internet, there's going to be 1,000 colonists all trying to get in with the Corpse or found their own all at once. They're beating the rush. But that's cheating, I said too loud. And again, the voices from outside dipped. Go, whispered Vijay. Quietly. Quietly, we backed down the corridor, turning around to face the way we were going only when we reached Vijay's secret toilet. We popped back out near Poveland, and Vijay floated up onto the ceiling and gestured us to join him. We put our faces close together and spoke softly. I'm sorry, I said, but it is cheating. No, it's not, Helene said. It's just taking advantage of circumstances. Look at the calmness who went up on the Falcon. That was the first Mars Inc. colony ship, which had made the voyage ten years before. They got to set up Mars-side Martian Chronicles without anyone else in the way. They had a totally blank world. They could mine the best mineral deposits, grab the best mountains to hollow out and pressurize, stake out the best oxygen patches. Are they cheating? Should they have waited for us to get there before they started? I swallowed. It's not the same thing, I said, but I didn't sound very convincing. Helene waved her hand at me in a dismissive, floppy gesture. What did you find out from them, Vijay? Before he could speak, she put her finger to his lips. Dave, you might want to move out of earshot until we're done here. Wouldn't want you to get tainted by all this cheating. Children, Vijay said with mocking sternness. Enough. I glared at Helene, who smiled at me with so much dimple and lip action that I felt myself blushing. Sorry, I mumbled. Now what I discovered was this. The Marside game is almost nothing like the game we play. It's a lot meaner, and rating is the order of the day. Four corps control the entire show, and every corp has to pay tribute to one of them for a license to operate, or face financial ruin. The four main corps hate each other, but they'll work in concert to destroy any independent corp that threatens their arrangement. Anything it takes. Price fixing, unfair advertising, market lockouts... He went on, rattling off a long list of sins that only auditors truly understood. Basically, these were all the ways that a corp could try too hard, like when all the corps in one sector, like Oxygen, 
do exclusive deals with all the Mars habitats to supply their air at a discount on the condition that the habitats agree not to buy water from some other corp. This was strictly forbidden on Martian Chronicles, Earthside at least. Though, of course, people were always trying it. So that's the shape of things, he concluded. The Eagle's crew are trying to work out from the spreadsheets and news bulletins they are getting from the Mars servers which of the four corps they should go to work for. They've decided to offer themselves as a team, thinking that they'll get higher wages if they all stand together. I shook my head. That's collusion, I said. If there was one thing that was even more against the rules I'd lived under than unfair competition, it was labor collusion, when a bunch of workers decided in secret to hold out for higher wage or to stop some of their friends from being fired or having their hours cut. It wasn't just illegal in Martian Chronicles, it was illegal on Mars, one of the fundamental tenets of Mars Inc.'s charter, totally free labor markets. It's a different game on Mars, Vijay said. Besides, what's really wrong with it? A company puts a lot of workers together so it can earn more profit. Why shouldn't workers get together to earn more wages? Helene raised her eyebrows at me as though to say, Do you have an answer? One that you're okay saying in front of Vijay? I tightened my lips. Vijay, can I say something to you without worrying that you'll be offended? He smiled and bobbed up and down in the null G. Of course, Dave. You're my friend. Let's it all hang out. What you're talking about is pure pove talk. The world has two kinds of people in it. Whiners and winners. A winner goes out and starts a company and figures out how to make as much as possible. A whiner complains that the winner isn't paying him enough and rather than starting his own company, complains and demands more money from the winner. The real way to get higher pay is to take a risk, start your own business, make something important in the world. I checked to see if he was offended. He was floating upside down, so it was hard to tell if he was smiling or not. Okay, so this is why you can always find the poves in Martian Chronicles. They're the ones bitching about the unfairness of everything instead of doing something. It's why there are so many poor people on Earth. It's a thought virus they all catch from their society, demanding that the world provide for them instead of providing for themselves. And it's the job of the doers and the winners to ignore the whiners and go on doing and winning so that the whiners will have somewhere to work. Vijay was looking at me with something like a mild smile on his face. I replayed my words and heard just how offensive they might sound to someone like Vijay. Look... I said, no longer meeting his gaze. Look, I'm not saying it's genetic. No one is saying that poor people are inherently inferior or anything. But it's a disease, and you catch it from the people around you. Helene shook her head at me. You really believe everything your dad tells you, don't you? I nearly turned around and left then, but I was still keenly aware of the loneliness I'd experienced for the three days I'd spent locked in my parents' cabin. So I stood my ground and pretended I hadn't heard her. Vijay said, I've heard this theory before. There are only one thing I wonder about. Maybe you could help me with it. Go ahead, I said. Can you explain where the people who died in the Procter & Gamble leak were whiners? I shook my head. No, of course not. But do you have any idea how many workers I've met who are missing fingers or eyes or hands? How many of them were called whiners and sent away because they asked their employers for compensation for the machines that mutilated them? I shook my head again. You don't get it. No, Vijay said, and I heard that the calm voice he used, that he always used, 
was just a tight belt cinched around an enormous pool of anger. That Vijay was angry at me, at us, at the colonists. No, Dave, I do get it. Do you know what cognitive dissonance is? We studied it in school, but hadn't paid a lot of attention. It's like when you believe something and the facts don't agree with it. That's right. So say, for example, that you believe that the world is fair, but when you look around it, you see that you have so very much more than everyone else. I could see where this was going. I began to walk away, but he floated and skipped after me, continuing to talk. So you have cognitive dissonance. How can the world be fair if you have more than everyone else? It must be fair for you to have more than, right? And how can that be? It can only be if you are better than everyone else, and everyone else is therefore worse than you. I reached a hatch and passed through it and moved out toward the living quarters, downhill in the gravity. For some reason, there were tears in my eyes. I didn't go back to the junior colonist lounge for a whole week. Instead, I spent the time with my dad, who seemed pleasantly surprised that his son wanted to hang out with him. It made me feel bad, like I'd been neglecting him, but it also made me ask myself why my father didn't think it was weird that I wasn't spending any time with kids my age. Dad had always been busy on Earth, traveling half the time for work, spending his time at home with his computer over his face, barking angrily at it while his hands worked the keyboard like a mad player attacking a church organ. I didn't mind, to be honest. Actually, I preferred it to those times when Dad decided to get all dad-like and insist on throwing a ball with me or take me to some kind of sports match or play some game on the big living room screen with me. It wasn't that it wasn't fun, but there was always a moment when we stopped talking about the game or the project and found ourselves sitting in awkward silence, trying to pretend that the reason we had nothing to say was that we were concentrating too hard on the matter at hand. On Earth, Dad had been a hotshot statistical risk analysis. This is not an easy thing to explain, but basically, what he did was try to figure out how to balance investments to minimize risk. Say there's an industry that benefits when someone finds a better way of growing wheat, the bread industry, say. And then there's another industry that suffers when someone finds a better way of growing wheat, like maybe, I don't know, the corn industry. I forget how he explained this, to be honest, but this is generally the idea. So what he does is figure out how to invest some money in both industries so that if someone finds a better wheat growing technique, the investment in bread pays out. And if no one invents it, the investment in corn pays out. That's the rough idea. What he did was like 10 million times more complicated, though. Anyways, it doesn't really matter now. Now we're going to Mars, and there are no risk analysts. When we got to Mars, Dad was going to have to start a new business or start a job or something. He had bought us into the gold tier from Mars settlements. That meant we were going to get our own private pressurized space, six months worth of food vouchers, and a million Martian ray guns. This sounds like a lot, but keep in mind that a pressure suit costs 450,000 Martian ray guns at last count. For this, he traded everything, every penny we had, our house, our furniture, our savings, everything. What were we going to do with it anyway? It wasn't like we could take it to Mars. Our personal luggage allowance was limited to 15 kilos each. Dad, I said, as we loitered in one of the corridors, nodding amiably at the other colonists as they went past on their way to the toilets or the common rooms or wherever it was everyone else always seemed to be going. He didn't hear me. He was looking into space, lips pursed, brows furrowed. 
It was the expression he'd worn back in his office when he'd been neck deep in work, kept her plastered across his face, only his lips and nose visible. It was weird seeing him make that face without a computer. More than weird. Scary. Like he was seeing into a world I couldn't see. Everything okay, Dad? I'd never asked him that before. What? Oh, yes, sorry. I was a million miles away. Fifteen million miles, I said. According to the morning Barsoom, that was the ship's blog written by some crew member and simplified. But we're closing fast. Mars in 49 days. Right, he said. Right. Exciting, huh? He said it so unconvincingly that my heart nearly broke. For years he'd been talking about Mars and how great it would be when we got there. He hated the Earth, hated all the rules and regulations, all the whiners who wanted him to invest in ethical funds that gave up on profits so that other whiners would get paid more. Mars was like some kind of promised land that we were headed to, a better world for people like us. Exciting, I said. He looked away. Dad, you don't seem excited, though. He put on a big, fake grin. I'm excited, son. It's just, you know, space travel isn't as glamorous as I thought it would be. You know me. I'm no good at sitting idle. I'm just itching to get some work done. How about starting something up with someone on board? I heard lots of people are starting their own little corpse, you know, hit the ground running. I couldn't believe I was lecturing Dad about business. It was quite a switch from the years and years of Dad telling me I should be more entrepreneurial, play a harder game of Martian Chronicles. Yeah, he said. Yeah. Well, that's something I've been thinking about. But, you know, I'm investigating opportunities. Don't want to jump into something that turns out to be a bust. Dad, what's going on? Back on Earth, you were always telling me to seize the opportunity, fail fast, move on. Why are you being so... I wanted to say scared, but Dad's face had gone all furious the way it did, so I didn't finish the sentence. There's some things you don't understand, kid, believe it or not. Some things that you're going to have to age a year or two before you can grok them. Why don't you run along and play, Sonny? He said it in the tone he used when he was telling off some idiot who just didn't get it, someone who was a whiner or a bureaucrat. He often asked those people, What planet are you living on? which I'd always thought was funny. After all, he was the one who wanted to leave the planet and go to a better one. It wasn't funny now. I sunk away back to the room and found Mom. One of the other moms had come over to our cabin for a chat. All the moms in our corridor had found each other shortly after launch, and it seemed to me that they'd nearly instantaneously formed a tight social club. I kind of envied them, the ease in which they came together as a group, it reminded me of when I'd been a little kid at after-school programs and the moms would all be in this tight cluster, chatting away merrily, even as the dads stood off in quiet clumps of two or three, twitching impatiently at their computers. Mom and her friend, Mrs. Bonilla, who spoke simplified mostly, though Mom had said she could speak French and Portuguese as well as her native Spanish, both smiled at me as I entered. I wanted to say something like, Mom, Dad is losing his freaking mind, but I couldn't say it in front of company. Hello, David. Mrs. Bonilla said. She was very pretty and young-seeming, and I remembered Mom telling me she had a ton of surgery and took pills all the time to keep up her appearance because, quote, Mexican companies are even harder on the aging woman in the boardroom than American ones. Dad had made a face at that. It was getting into whining territory, and the eagle was a no-whining zone. Good day, Mrs. Bonilla, 
I said. That's what we'd all settled on on board the Eagle, where it was always morning for someone, always afternoon or evening or midnight for someone else, depending on which sleep schedule you kept. Mom cocked her head at me. Things not go so good with your father, David? Of course, she knew. She spent more time with him than I did. Always the same for Mr. Bonilla, Mrs. Bonilla said. All the men, it is like the no activity. They can't live with no activity. A lot of simplified was like that, taking a word like activity and making it its opposite by putting no in front of it. Mom sighed. <sighs> David's father has it big, big. From big, big, important to small, small, no important. Make him crazy. Mars, Mrs. Bonilla said. I remembered that she had been a big, big, important, too, the head of a giant cement company, but somehow she was coping okay in transit. Mars, Mom agreed. Mom liked to pour in over the Aries Plain Dealer, Colonist Edition, issues that came in over the ship's radio, especially the want ads. My husband wants to start a corp on Mars. Not me. I say work for some time. See how all is, then start a corp. Why run without looking? But Dad is... He's crazy. It's temporary. There's many no-knowns about Mars. He wants information. Wants to try things. Can't do either. Your father is big, big information processor. Without information, he starves. He's big crazy with hunger. Understand that, David. He's not angry with you. Just frustrated with the delay. That settled it. But if Mrs. Bonilla wasn't there, I would have said, how come so many other dads managed to cope? Why are there all those other dads out there trying to form corps and get ready to hit Mars running? But not in front of company. There wasn't anything to say to mom. Dad didn't want to talk to me. My only friends on board weren't talking to me. Or was it me who wasn't talking to them? There was only one thing left to do. Get back into the game. <laughs> There you go. If you haven't, if you've just joined us and you missed part one, go back to last week and grab that one. And next week is the final episode of The Martian Chronicles by Corey Dockdrow. It was narrated by Jeff Lane. Jeff, I said it before, I'll say it again. And actually, I've even given Jeff another one straight after. So Jeff, what can I say? Do pop over there and check out Jeff's site as well. He is also a fantastic writer and his books are up there on Amazon as well. So do look out for that. Jeff, couldn't get by without you. Thank you so much, sir. And I just want to remind you about Tales to Terrify. Launched just last week on the 13th of Friday the 13th. What a day to launch a horror podcast. Host is our very own Larry Santoro. I'm sitting back and just sitting in the wings there, just being the producer on this show, but it is a fine show. Please pop over. We have had a remarkable first episode download. Oh, well over the thousand mark. It's just been tremendous. Thank you so much for everyone that's kind of listened and kind of delved into that. And like I say, this show probably would, or that show, Tales to Terrify, would never come about if if Larry hadn't really said yes to the project. It had to be Larry that kind of delivered this. Larry's got this when, you know, over the kind of years, everyone's kind of listen to Larry and, you know, how he kind of communicates and how he gets things over on his little segments when he's done for the show. And he was just so right, you know, just a great, you know, great radio voice. 
But Tales to Terrify. So do pop over there. There's links on the site. Come over and you'll see Tales to Terrify. Just type that in as well. Thank you so much. We'd love to have you subscribe to that. And here's a little plea as well. Pop over to iTunes and do a little write-up for when give some marks on iTunes as well. That always helps us get noticed. Next up is a little article or a new article by Paul Finch. Paul dropped us a line not long ago and says, you know, an idea for an article which would be vintage old-time radio, and this is like the X-1 and all those kind of stations from the way gone, way gone by. And actually, that's what I guess me and Kieran first kind of, you know, when we first kicked off Starship Sova, those were kicked around and they were accessible, you know, and now Paul's kind of delving into there and just giving some snippets out of, out of them shows and having a chat about them. So, Paul, sir. Thanks, Tony. It's good of you all to shift up and let me on the sofa. There are a lot of old-time radio sci-fi shows available for free download. Well, to be accurate, there are a lot of episodes and a few good shows, some of which I shall be talking about in these articles. The most notable series must be Dimension X. This show was first heard on NBC on April 8th, 1950, and it ran until September 29th, 1951. Adventures in time and space, transcribed in future tense. Dimension The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, bring you Dimension X. The show dramatised the work of many young new writers like Ray Bradbury, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov and Kurt Vonnegut. Wonder what became of them? Story titles you may recognise include The Green Hills of Earth, The Martian Chronicles and Pebble in the Sky. For me, the most dramatic episode came when real life intruded into the show. I'm going to play an excerpt from episode 12 titled Destination Moon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 1950 on June the 24th. Having landed on the moon, our heroes find they have not got enough fuel to get them all back. Let's join them 23 minutes in. No, 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 no. You, you've got to go back, both of you. I've been discredited. They won't listen to me. You've got to tell them what you've seen. Listen, here. General. You've I... got to tell them what the Earth looked like from here. Vulnerable, defenseless, hanging in the sky. I knew this trip would have military value. Well, it does. Can you imagine Adam warheads launched at Earth from up here? The moon is the perfect base for an attack on the Earth. Remember, it's only one-sixth as hard to shoot rockets from here to Earth as it is the other way. You've got to tell them the only government to control the moon must be a world government. General, I, I guess you don't know it. But what you just said means you've got to get back to Earth and convince them even if the rest of us don't make it. Barnes, don't... No, General, that's all there is to it. Unless it's Mr. Barnes, General. Never mind, Sweeney, you're not in Don't worry, you'll get back. I was going to say, why don't you heroes match for it? Hard man's out. All right, Barnes, I'll go for that. I mean... No, no, no. Two to one, Barnes. Well, all right. What do we use? You can match buttons off your overalls. All right. Each one pull off a button. I'd better check Hastings on Earth. Here's my button. Cartwright. Hello, hello, Earth. Standing by, Mr. Barnes. Uh, we're working it out. One of us stays behind. What? We're matching for it. Check time. What's well, only 110 pounds? Isn't that some... Check time. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt the program Dimension X for just a moment from, for two important bulletins from the wires of United Press. From Seoul, Korea... The North Korean radio says the North Korean Communist government formally declared war on South Korea, effective at 11 a.m. Sunday, Korean time. And then a little later, this bulletin from Washington. State Department officials say they will hold Russia responsible for the North Korean attack against the independent South Korean Republic, which this country and the United Nations brought into being and have supported. We now return to the program Dimension X. Yes, sir. 9.41.50. 10 minutes to zero hour. Check. Well, talk about timing. I can't be the only one who thought it was part of the program. War of the Worlds in reverse. They couldn't have started the Korean War at a better time if it had been sponsored by astounding science fiction themselves. Four years after Dimension X came the follow-on series, X-1. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. 
These are stories of the future. Adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents X minus one. This show ran from April 1955 to January 1958. The first 30-odd episodes were in fact repeats from Dimension X. X-1 dramatized many stories from the magazine Galaxy, with authors such as Isaac Asimov, Clifford Cinemac, Lee Sprangley Camp, Frederick Pohl, Fritz Leiber, Murray Lester, Robert Sheckler, James Brish, Philip K. Dick, Ray Bradbury, Theodore Sturgeon. Well, you get the idea. My favourite episode is number 38, titled Skulking Permit, written by Robert Sheckley, and as I've just found out, broadcast on the day of my birth, February the 15th, 1956. I'd love a new big hard drive, hint. The story takes place on the planet New Delaware in the year 2204, which is contacted for the first time in 200 years. It is still an Earth colony, so it won't have to be reconquered, but the people will have to be civilised. This means that they will have to have jails, but that also means they have to have crime. So the citizens hire someone to be a criminal and prepare to show the earthlings how civilized they can be. Now, Tom, about your job, I'm appointing you town criminal. I don't see why there has to be a criminal. That's a very important part of Earth society. All the books say so, Tom. The criminal is as important as the postman or the, or the police chief. He works against society. If you don't have people working against society, how can you have people working for it? How can there be any more important job? I don't want to do it. Now, be reasonable, Tom. Put yourself in my position. This inspector comes and he meets Billy Painter, our police chief. He asks to see the jail. Then he says, no prisoners? How can I hold my head up and tell him that we don't have any crime? No crime, he'll say. But Earth colonies always have crime. Don't you see that, Tom? Uh, right there, the whole thing falls through. He'll see that we're not truly Earth-like. We're, we're faking it. We're aliens. And you heard what he said about being rough on aliens. Well, yeah, but why me? Can't spare anyone else. And you've got narrow eyes. Criminals always have narrow eyes. Well, they aren't that narrow. Tom, please, we're all doing our part. You, you want to help now, don't you? Oh, I suppose so. Fine, you're our criminal. Here, I've, I've got this paper all made out for you, just to make it legal. Skulking permit. Uh, no, all men by these presents that Tom Fisher is a duly authorized thief and murderer. He is hereby required to skulk in dismal alleys, haunt places of low repute, and to break the law. Uh, what's the law? I'll let you know as fast as I make them up. All Earth colonies have laws. Oh, well, what do I do? You steal and kill. Look, I'll, I'll give you a couple of books on it. Steal as much as you like. Uh, one uh, murder should be enough. Don't overdo it. It don't sound sensible somehow. Well, you can work up to it, Tom. Why don't you start off easy, like by haunting a place of low repute? It's thoughtful and funny, and I could see the ending coming a mile off. And then when it arrived, it wasn't the one I'd expected. 
The old-time radio researchers have collected all episodes known to still exist of both Dimension X and X-1, plus lots of additional material, including copies of some of the original magazine stories, and these can be downloaded free from their website at otrr.org or from the Internet Archive at archive.org. This is where I download mine. The files can be downloaded as single episodes or as CD size zip files. Get the zipped versions as these contain a lot of extra material, including nine covers of the original Galaxy magazines and 48 PDFs of the original stories. If you have any favourite old radio shows, why not let me know? Send your emails to Tony. That's all bloody teaching. Okay, that's the end of uh, home. Tony says this needs a name. Nathaniel? Gerald. How about Theatre of the Mind? Okay, I was DJ Frogs, and that's the end of Theatre of the Mind. 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 Next month in Theatre of the Mind. Of the Mind. Of the Mind. Of the Mind. I'll be looking at the 1999 New Zealand series Claiborne. Right, I'm off as I'm halfway through the Star Trek Corps of Engineers novel Out of the Cocoon. <laughs> There you go, Paul. Paul's mad. He sent this text the other day, and I forget what it was, or an email the other day, and I forget what, how we actually got to, to, to kind of get on about it, but I think I was asking how to kind of put the show together, how to put his little article together and do things, and maybe a name for the show and something else. And he's like, <laughs> he you know, kind of keep his dentures in. I just, Paul, that got me tickled pink that So Thank you so much for that. Next up is the second part of Exit Centre Stage. This is the, the vintage serial, all to do with Lestrade, Sherlock Holmes and everything like that. So look out for this. This is a fantastic. And, you know, as a reminder as well, we have a couple of tickets. I think there's about eight tickets as recording is left for the Sherlock Holmes and science fiction. This is the live video lecture that our Amy H. Sturgis is going to do as well and myself coming up in February the 18th. So if you want to get a ticket for that, please, that would be fantastic. There'll be a link on, or as actually, or when you come to the front of the website, you'll see a little Starship Sovas. It's a Sherlock Holmes little science fiction widget. You'll see that there. Just click on that, and that'll take you over to the Eventbrite page. Episode 2. There's been a murder at the Adelphi Theatre. Trevelyan Cavendish, a leading man with more enemies than fans, has died on stage. And a number of the cast are helping Inspector Sholter Lestrade with his inquiries. One of them is Lestrade's old friend, Harry Bandicoot. A bent copper. Oscar Wilde called me a bent copper. Now, Harry, there's no glory in rearranging Mr. Wilde's face. Damn it, Sholter, the man's insufferable. Uh, <clears throat> he hinted that all was not well between you and Cavendish. Oh, did he? If you must know, he was offensive to Letitia. Letitia? He made a remark about amateurs. Well, apart from Cavendish himself and Dame Ellen, we all are. That was the point of the evening, to raise funds for Lady Eveline. You can't do that if you have to pay professionals. How did he die, Sholto? Now, now, what an improper question, Mr Bandicoot. Now that you are a suspect. A suspect? Sholto, are you serious? I'm always serious, Harry, you know that. Trevelyan Cavendish died by poisoning one of the corrosives. Phenol will be my guess. Carbolic acid. 
Doubtless an old scholar like you will be familiar with its chemical formula. And now I know you're not serious. I went to Eton, remember? I don't think that we had any science lessons. If it wasn't in Cicero, it didn't exist. Which in itself poses a bit of a problem. Why? The taste. The smell. Have a go at this. What is it? It's a glass, Harry. <laughs> yes, but I mean, uh, ah, Trevelyan's. Exactly. I found it by the body, as you see it now, with the stem broken. Smell it. What? Go on. Don't kill you any more than it did him. Champagne. Verve Clico, 84, possibly 85. Lord Ferrers would know. I'm sure he would. The point is that if Trevelyan Cavendish took a swift draught of phenol, he didn't take it from that glass. He'd have been able to smell it. So would you. Then how... Was it invested? I don't know. Ladies of ill repute have been known to kill themselves by accident using phenol as a douche. I'm pretty sure that's not how Mr Cavendish took it. Besides, his lips are particularly badly affected, as is his tongue. You might say he bit off more than he could chew tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you get this stuff from? Phenol? Anywhere. The disinfectant. Common in suicides. Sholto, you don't think... Cavendish took his own life? It's possible. Why do it so publicly? One last play? Mm -hmm. He was arrogant enough, I suppose. All right, Harry. You'd better send in Sir Arthur Sullivan. Somebody here tonight wanted Cavendish dead. And I might just trap one of them into telling me who and why. In the event, it was not just Sir Arthur Sullivan who came into the manager's office at Harry Bandicoot's request, but William Gilbert too. I'm afraid it's not the policy of Scotland Yard. Oh, no, Lestrade. I'm not having Sullivan here talking to you on his own. There's no telling what he'll accuse me of. Would you tell this half-wit that he's the last person likely to enter my conversation? Or even my mind? That's because it is a well-known fact that Arthur Sullivan has no mind. Gentlemen, please. May I remind you that the man is dead. If you insist on being interviewed together, so be it. But I cannot have this incessant bickering. I don't bicker. He does. Nonsense. If Oxford University gave out honorary degrees for bickering, he'd get one. Sullivan could bicker for England. Sir Arthur. Now, how long have you known the deceased? Cavendish? Several years. He was lamentable in Pirates in 80. Almost the worst young Frederick I've ever seen. Really? Too old. Had to wear a toupee even then. Toupee? But I thought Mr. Cavendish was very proud of his hair. So he was, what there was of it. But he had to tweak his own into position so that it enmeshed, as it were, with somebody else's. Somebody else's? Oh, yes. He spared no expense. I heard he had it imported, made up from the tresses of Polynesian handmaidens. I'd heard Patagonia. Tell him it's Polynesia. Who knew about this, uh, the, the wig, I mean? Everybody, Everybody did. did. Of course, he begged for a part in Utopia, but, frankly, he was past it. Never been anywhere near it. So, neither of you can think of a reason why anyone would want to see him dead. Of, of course. course. Stay on. Well, to be candid, Trevelyan Cavendish was such a repugnant individual that anyone could have done it. Wilde hated him because he turned him down. Turned... I'd rather not be too graphic. It was rather a long time ago. 
Cadogan Hotel, March 81, I'd heard. 82, April, Suite 4. 5. Wilde made his usual advances. Cavendish retreated. Blacked Wilde's eye. Gave him a thick lip. Well, thicker lip. Then there's Dysart. Dysart? Owed him a considerable sum of money. Cavendish was demanding settlement. Ten thousand. I heard twelve. But of course, Inspector, you're forgetting Dame Ellen. Professional jealousy? Good Lord, no. Nellie was absolutely dreadful in Ilanthe. Anyway, they hardly ever went for the same roles. No, he jilted her. Really? It was all in the Times, 85 January. February. And it was the graphic. Nasty business, really. There she was, waiting at the church. Lord, how he did upset her. Ritz flew, probably in all directions. It's a terrible thing, breach of promise. She swore revenge. I heard she just swore. The Dean of St Paul's turned quite white, overnight. So you're telling me that any one of these people had a motive? <laughs> Except, of course, you two. Do I look as pale as you, Arthur? Paler, William. Now look, I will have you know that Sir Arthur Sullivan is a man of unimpeachable conduct, the finest musician of this, or indeed any generation. And if you're attempting to besmirch the character of Mr. William Gilbert, a gentleman soon to be honoured by the palace, or I'm not the finest musician of my generation, may I remind you that this wordsmith is the creator of some of the most dazzling prose this country has ever seen. May I also remind you that there are laws of slander in this same country. And of wrongful arrest. Arthur, shall we? I cannot bear this man's snivelling presence any longer. Absolutely, William. Letitia Bandicoot had never seen a man die before, yet only two hours earlier, Trevelyan Cavendish had dropped to her feet, not so much in admiration as in a coma. He said he wanted to apologise, Sholto, for his rudeness to me in the dress rehearsal. Why he had to do it on stage, I don't know. Perhaps he didn't have the greatness to do it with other people around. What happened then? He complained it was hot and began clawing at his collar and throat. His neck did look awfully red. Then he began to... Oh, dear. Sort of twitch. His face. He slumped to the floor, writhing about. It was dreadful. Just dreadful. Yes, I know, I know. I'm sorry to have to put you through this, but I have to know. I have to understand. Yes. Yes, of course. I'm all right. Sorry. Tell me, at the end of the show, when the curtain closed for the last time, did you notice what Cavendish did? Yes, as a matter of fact, I did. He pirouetted around the stage while we all said how marvellous he was. Well, all except Harry and Dame Ellen. And then he went to his dressing room. His dressing room? Now... Dame Ellen mentioned that, too. Come with me, will you, Letitia? I think we might find a few answers there. Motive? Motive? What are you talking about? A motive for murder, Lord Ferris. A reason for killing Trevelyan Cavendish. Are you saying I had one? No, but somebody did. I am merely pursuing my inquiries. Well, Bally will pursue them somewhere else. I'm a peer of the realm, defrayed. The Prince of Wales' Baccarat partner. The 
The perils go back to doomsday, you know. I'm sure they do, sir. But a man has been murdered, and I have my job to do. Job? Oh, yes. How quaint. Must be bally awful for you. Still, somebody has to do it, I suppose. Look, how much longer are you going to keep us all here? Uh, I mean, the Verve Clico ran out minutes ago. I'm quite parched. Uh, how is your wife's fund going? Fund? Oh, oh, very well, I believe. Why? I was just curious. How well did you know the deceased? The what? Uh, oh, Cavendish. Well, hardly at all. He used to give the mem acting lessons from time to time. Bally rot, if you ask me. The mem? The mem Saab, Lady Ferrers. Good God, to spade. Haven't you been in India? No, sir, never. Good Lord. It's the brightest jewel in the Imperial Crown, you know. Never been to India. What is it all coming to? So, Trevelyan Cavendish gave your wife acting lessons? Yes, typical of Everline. Embraces causes like the rest of us embrace native girls. Well, in the old days, of course. Personally, I'd rather cuddle a bottle of bubbly these days. Can't catch things from a bottle of bubbly, can you? Well, cirrhosis, I suppose. But I've got that already. Tell me, Le Spade, is it because we're so close to the river that this place is overrun with rats? Rats, my lord? Well, there, man. There was one nibbling your blotter just then. I squashed three waiting for a refill in the purple room or whatever the bally colour of it is. Ah, oh, rats. Yes, they're everywhere, aren't they? I find banks particularly full of them. Banks? Ah, no, that's where Messrs. Coots are so marvellous. Have their own rat catcher. Never see one of them scurrying round there. No, it's the cockroaches at Coots. Plop right into your champagne if you're not careful. Really? Now, would you excuse me, my lord? I have to send one of my constables on an errand. To be continued. In Exit Centre Stage, A Yarn of the Yard by M.J. Trove, the narrator was Kenneth Kendall and the cast was as follows. Inspector Lestrade, Reginald Marsh. Sir Arthur Sullivan, Bernard Meacher. William Gilbert, Michael Shear. Oscar Wilde, Peter Lewis. Lady Eveline Ferrers, Barbara Walter. Trevelyan Cavendish, Ronald Good. Harry Bandicoot, James Pellow. Letitia Bandicoot, Carol Glover. Dysart, My Troll. Dame Ellen, Rosalind Alloway. Lord Ferrers, Ronald Good. The series produced by Michael Sheard. Studio direction by Dennis Chubb and Samantha Seaton Clark. Let's now for the final part of Exit Centre Stage and a little interview that Peter Seaton Clark carried out. Peter organised all this and actually was involved in in the making of that. He played a character as well. If you listen out to kind of the credits there, I forget which one Peter was. Well, you know, a young strapping man he was. He was. <laughs> Cheers, John. Yeah, Peter. Anyway, let's now for an interview with Pete and the writer of that play. Next up is Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. And like I say, don't forget, Amy is on the video, live video, if you want to see Amy doing a lecture and having a chat. There's questions and answers as well. All about TV, media, the tie-ins of Sherlock Holmes, the science fiction of Sherlock Holmes. 
You may hit Sturgis Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining me once again for a look back into genre history. Today, I'd like to bring your attention to a publication from 2011, a work that was all but lost to English readers and now is available, I am very pleased to say, in a new and excellent version. When we think of the science fiction trope of invisibility, when we think of the invisible man, we usually, quite rightly, go to H.G. Wells. But Wells wasn't the only founding father of science fiction with his own invisibility tale. There was also Jules Verne. And while Jules Verne certainly needs no introduction, his work The Secret of Wilhelm Storitz does, and that's what I'm going to try to provide today. I'm happy to say that in 2011, the University of Nebraska Press with its Bison Frontiers of Imagination imprint, published a new version, Restoring the Secret of Wilhelm Storitz. It is the first English translation of Verne's original manuscript, and it is translated and edited by Peter Schulman, a professor of French literature at Old Dominion University and a trustee at the North American Jules Verne Society. The Secret of Wilhelm Storz was one of the very last novels Verne ever wrote. He was passionate about it and wanted to see it published in his lifetime, which unfortunately he did not do. He began working on it just as H.G. Wells' Invisible Man was published in 1898. But Wilhelm Storz was not published until 1910, five years after Verne's death, and it was published in a format that had been radically altered by Verne's son. In the last century, we've learned a lot about how much Verne's son had control over and made changes to those final works of Verne's. In the case of Wilhelm Storitz, he practically rewrote the work, and some of the changes are very strange. For example, the original novel was set in the present day, uh, in that sense, the end of the 19th century, and his son went back and rewrote it to be set in the previous century. This is very strange because so much of Wilhelm Storitz is tied up in the technology of the period. You really get a sense of Verne being there on the cutting edge of transportation and information technology and all sorts of things. It's very grounded in a scientific sense of context. And his son went through and basically took all of these things out and rewrote the text. So that's very odd. Even worse, his son rewrote the ending. And believe me, the ending of this book, wow, it follows you around and haunts you afterwards. It's daring, and it's dark, and it has tremendous uh, emotional payoff. And that was lost with the son's version, which was a very trite, uh, happy ending that he believed would be more commercially successful. Fortunately, we have now that ending restored. It's easy to think of Verne as being pro-science, pro-progress, being excited about the adventure of scientific discovery and knowledge and adventure. But there was a dark side to Verne. 
We see that in his very first novel, Paris in the 20th Century, that bleak dystopia that at the time editors refused to publish. And as he grew older, that uh, moodiness and darkness became more apparent. And let's be fair, by the end of his life, he had a lot of things going on. He had financial difficulties, which led him to sell the yacht on which he wrote. Um, he had problems with his relationship with his son. He had a lot of his close friends die. And of course, he was shot in the leg and crippled from an assassination attempt on him by his nephew. So, you know, there were issues that Vern had. And I think these influences play into a sense of atmosphere and a tone that is reminiscent of something from E.T.A. Hoffman or Edgar Allan Poe. The story is told from the perspective of Henry Vidal, who travels from Paris to a fictional city in Hungary at the invitation of his brother Mark. Brother Mark is in Hungary because he's getting ready to marry the beautiful Myra Roderick, who is the daughter of an influential family in the town. The picturesque travel from France to Hungary really allows Verne to set the stage here. What he discovers is that his brother isn't the only person who's been interested in Myra's hand. Myra's been proposed to by Wilhelm Storitz. Storitz is the son of a Prussian scientist, a sort of mad scientist figure who had all sorts of breakthroughs that he kept secret, and now the countryside believes that Wilhelm has access to all of his father's scientific knowledge. Their understanding of his secret breakthroughs and discoveries is tinged with superstition, so you're always feeling as if you're going back and forth between something that is scientific and something that is supernatural. And in fact, some of the locals tend to think that Wilhelm Storz's father is going to rise from the grave, resurrecting himself thanks to some of his advanced research. Well, Storz isn't too happy that the family turns him down, when he asks for Myra's hand. He tries again, and once again he is rebuffed. And so the story is one of Storitz's revenge against the family for denying him access to his true love. On the eve of Mark and Myra's wedding, this takes a very sinister turn. There are several really interesting things to underscore here. One is, when you think about H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, in some senses, the book is about how the human who is taken out of the rules of society, who's sort of put on the margins, devolves morally and becomes a depraved individual. The invisibility is, in a sense, a symbol of the character's isolation and the fact that he is outside of the normal human community. In The Secret of Wilhelm Storitz, the moral dilemma is a clear and traditional one, the story of the jilted lover seeking revenge, and invisibility, in this case, is a weapon that he chooses to wield, Storitz isn't turned into the bad guy. He's been a sort of tragic anti-hero from word go. 
But his mad scientist father's breakthrough, this new scientific possibility, just gives him another means of acting out. Another key point of interest in the story is the fact that in this novel, Verne puts a female character front and center. In fact, an early working title of the novel was "The Invisible Fiance." Myra's character is strong and compelling, and Verne seems to put her up as a symbol of art and love and. The timeless virtues that seek to build and to endure, whereas Storitz seems to be a symbol of things that are transient, things that are destructive, things that, in the end, represent the weaker side of the human condition. Or to quote Peter Shulman, with his discussions on art and love throughout the novel. Verne seems to imply that while scientific invention can ultimately lead to vanity and destruction, art and love can withstand anything. End quote. Now, this isn't a perfect novel by any stretch of the imagination. The travelogue section at the beginning might be slow for some, and it is infused with Verne's pretty strong anti-Germanic sentiment. That said. The novel works on many levels, not just as a dark science fiction story, but also as a mystery, a ghost story, a love story. It's also soaked in Verne's time, so we see many references to artists and authors, as well as contemporary scientific advances. And I should point out that that Shulman does a great job of footnoting names and terms and giving useful notes that really help put this in context. While it's not simply Verne's response to Wells on the issue of invisibility, I do think it's important to point out that both authors were engaged in the same conversation, and reading the two back to back would be a wonderful way. To explore both Wells' work and Verne's, both serve as a kind of morality play, and, to my way of thinking, therefore, represent science fiction at its best. I will leave you with a parting quote from *The Secret of Wilhelm Storitz*: "No more personal security." As such, Wilhelm Storitz had come back to Rogs, and no one was able to see him there. Whether he was still there, no one could know for sure. And then, had he kept the secret of this discovery—a secret that his father had, in all likelihood, bequeathed to him all to himself—could his servant Hermann also make use of it? Could others use it for his benefit or their own? And who would stop them from breaking into houses whenever and however they pleased, from taking part in the daily lives of others? Wouldn't the intimacy of family life be destroyed, even in one's own home? Could anyone be certain of being alone, certain of not being overheard or not being spied upon, unless one kept oneself in total darkness? And then, outside in the streets, this perpetual fear of being followed without knowing it by an invisible being who would never let you out of his sight, who could mistreat you if he wanted to. And was there any way of avoiding attacks of all sorts now made so easy? Would this not lead to a permanent problem resulting in the complete annihilation of social life as we knew it?
Thank you so much for joining me for another look back into genre history. I look forward to being with you again soon. There you go, Amy. Thank you so much. Looking forward to seeing you in the flesh. (laughs) There you go. So what news? The news is... Josh has sorted out the, the sites now. We had a little little tingle of a, a virus swept through the, the all all kinds of the feeds and the sites. And a lot of you might notice now you just get tons of old Starship sofas coming down as well. So that's we, we kind of back to normal. Josh had to basically delete the whole everything. Just delete the whole everything that Starship Sofa's done and build it up again from scratch on you know a new kind of new whole new system. He's uploaded that, and so everything's sparkling, spanking new, new forums and everything. And it actually, you know, like the front of the website looks exactly the same, but to me it doesn't, you know, it's like a new car. It's like having the brand new car. So, Josh, thank you so much. Don't forget, if you want to, you know, help support the show, again, on the front of the website there, there is some donation buttons. That would be fantastic if you'd like to donate to the show. I keep the old girl going. There's different options now for the subscriber month, or there's a one-time donation. That would be fantastic. Until next week, and the final part of Cory Doctorow's The Martian Chronicles. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two... Whoa.